you know, the biggest um, emerging market in the world is not China. It's women. <laughs> These days, we control 63% of the wealth of the world. This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of RJ Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. The Me Too movement is thriving. Matt Lauer and Charlie Rose have lost their seats. Harvey Weinstein is on trial for rape. The veil of secrecy and shame has been lifted. Does this mean we can check that box? Mission accomplished. Not really. The real-life corporate world has yet to do all that it will take for environments to fundamentally change. Sylvia Ann Hewlett, in her new book, Hashtag Me Too in the Corporate World, Power, Privilege, and the Path Forward, uses data, analysis, interviews, and her considerable and award-winning skills to help us understand the day-to-day contributing factors of corporate culture that must change. In this, her 14th book, she gives us yet another critically acclaimed book that is practical, smart, and even slightly optimistic. Sylvia, welcome to Just the Right Book. Roxanne, it's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, so, Sylvia, let's you you as I as I mentioned in this uh, little intro, you talk about a lot of data, right? And you talk about the indirect and direct costs of the environment. So, let's start by sharing some of the significant data that you've discovered, and, and then let's talk about how you came to this. You've you've been highly successful, renowned in the corporate field for mentorship and, and sponsorship and, and how you function. But how did you come to want to address this issue? Well, that's a fabulous way in. Uh, let's start with some of the numbers. Sexual misconduct, it turns out, is very expensive <laughs> for corporations. <Good>. <laughs> yes. And what I am discovering as I talk to chief risk officers at uh, City, for instance, mm. is that they are running scared. Uh, just think of the cost of lawsuits, right, and settlements. Uh, well, you know, Google is at 300 million and, you know, only moving up. Michigan State University, which wow. was three hundred uh, million in settlements. In settlements, yes. Uh, Michigan State University was the scandal with the young gymnasts, mm. right? Is a billion dollars and counting. I mean, the costs can be huge. So that is pretty obvious. Yeah. Uh, less obvious in terms of these direct costs uh, is the hit to the brand. Mm. Nike has a, a brand that's valued at, you know, uh, $15 billion. Uh, They reckon that about 10% has been knocked off that brand uh, since those 11 top executives were fired mm. for predatory, abusive behavior. Uh, and the company also lost its C-suite, right? And its heir right. apparent. Uh, so that kind of hit uh, to a brand is very important because Nike is no longer the go-to company for women's sneakers or women's apparel because of its new uh, compromised image, if you like. Mm -hmm. 
It's chink in its armor. Absolutely. Uh, Lululemon, the same story. Guest Jeans. All of these mm. uh, companies that stand for health and wellness and uh, female strength, right, uh, when they get this kind of uh, scandal at the top, are hit very badly. Yeah. When you turn to the um, indirect costs, it's a little more subtle, <laughs> but again, um, pretty scary in terms of the bottom line. I find in my data that fully 60% of those bright young engineers in Silicon Valley that choose to quit do it because of the toxic predatory cultures. Mm. And it, it's not just women, right? It's immigrants. It's brown people. It's anyone who is the other. Not a bro. Right. Not a bro. <laughs> uh, right. Not a lookalike to the, you know, uh, um, you know, the uh, Steve Jobs, you know, the Zuckerbergs of this world. Yeah. Right. So we know that that is hurting these companies. You know, it is a talent-hungry, uh, <laughs> uh, talent-scarce environment in those STEM fields. So that is hurting. Mm -hmm. And finally, you know, and this is really very distressing, 60% uh, of women on the fast track are saying that they are no longer able to get sponsorship i.e., you know, real advocacy from the top guys because the top guys, even if they're good guys, are too scared. Yeah. So, you know, part of my book is addressing how the heck you continue to that, do that. Uh, if you are a, uh, a leader that believes that gender smarts at the top is a good idea, how do you continue to do that in this world of Me Too? And, and, and just to expand on the data a tiny bit, Sylvia, before we go to your story, I mean, you've got an amount of data in here about the percentage of people, of women, uh, that have been sexually harassed or, um, or have come into sexual bias. The number of men right, exactly. uh, that have been subject to the this the number of women that have been subject to this by other women i mean yes. the data is you know naturally or not naturally but obviously the highest percentage is senior men against women right but that isn't alone the issue and i think that you know i'm going to encourage people to read the book to get the whole dimension of it right. but the data alone to me sylvia was a reminder of all the different ways that sexual harassment pops up? Well, I think at bottom, it's weaponized mm. uh, as an instrument of maintaining territory and power. Yeah. Because right? it is a form of power. Exactly. It, you know, and there's a continuum. It's bullying. It's hazing. Just think of the military. Yeah. Uh, it's a way for the top dog, whether that top dog is, you know, uh, uh, a female or, or a person of color, um, it doesn't matter. It's a way for those at the top, the old boys club, the old girls club, or the new girls club, right, mm -hmm. to strut their stuff to demonstrate that they have all the cards. Yeah. Uh, so I think uh, a recurrent theme in this work is uh, the degree to which it is about power. It's a power play. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it intersects with sexual desire. Uh, a lot of the time, but it is driven by this attribute of uh, particularly 
homogeneous leadership cultures yeah. to want to keep all the new kids on the block on the edges. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, one of the things that was interesting is you've got great pragmatic advice in here, and we'll get to some of it, but one of the things you mentioned about a corporate culture that might suggest a toxic environment is what you just referred to, a homogeneous exactly. environment. So if you've got all white guys, right. the idea of one woman coming in or right. one brown person or one right. gay person is not going to have a smooth entry right. into that environment because yes. that's obviously what they value, right? Exactly. And, you know, the other marker of a uh, an environment that might well be uh, riddled with uh, sexual misconduct is an environment where there is a star system, where someone is seen as untouchable mm. because he or she— That uh, would have been Matt Lauer exactly. at NBC. So if you look at the figures— the media, which has lots of stars, and tech, which is overwhelmingly male at the top, are the two sectors which have twice as much sexual abuse going on than, say, the legal for, uh, you know, world. Because they have the indispensable person. Yes, you know, the, uh, the rock star. Yes. Yeah. Um, but, you know, just to go back to the figures, and I'll just, you know, touch on this because there's lots of stories as mm. well as data in the book. Just think of this, 34% of junior women are in the white-collar workplace. I'm only looking at folks with college degrees who are, uh, you know, in the white-collar mm -hmm. world, right? So 34% of them have experienced harassment, uh, which is unwanted sexual advances, mm -hmm. Uh, and 7% have undergone, you know, the more brut brutal stuff, what I call uh, sexual assault, and that's unwanted uh, sexual contact, which ranges from groping to rape. Mm. And I do distinguish between the two yeah, because you can't put all of this in the same bag. So, Sylvia, speaking about not putting everything in the same bag, one of the things, there are two things that, that, or maybe three, that worry me as we move through changing the environment and solving the problem. One is that there is some melding of behavior that um, I think is unfortunate, but uh, that might be my opinion. I'll be interested in yours. So you and I came into the work world at around the same time. We were the first wave of women. By the way, happy birthday. It was your birthday the other day, Yes, right? it is. <laughs> happy birthday. Um, we were the first wave of women, and I think we would both agree that we're surprised that there hasn't been more progress. Yes. But I think, well, I won't say we, but for me, a lot of behavior that when I was going through the financial world in New York in the 70s and 80s, I considered guys who were jerks as compared to guys who were predators. Yes. And so the question is, is that a noteworthy distinction or isn't it a noteworthy distinction? And have we lost the ability to distinguish between those two types of people? It's a great question. Uh, I do profoundly feel that, you know, the Al Frankens of this world are in a very different category from the, you know, uh, Harvey Weinsteins. Yeah. And I think what's happening in corporate America uh, in, you know, 
2020 is that there's a much greater recognition of the need for external investigations, right? Uh, you don't just, you know, fire someone on the spot because there has been an accusation. And uh, you But know, isn't the, some of that happening? Uh, well, both things are happening. Mm-hmm. Uh and I do feel that due process uh, is beginning to be much more seriously, um, uh, you know, insisted on by leaders. Yeah. Um, even a company as um, liberal, if you like, or as progressive as IBM is talking about there being a road to redemption for someone mm-hmm. who uh, is, you know, just uh, – behaving badly but hasn't really uh, assaulted anyone or has other redeeming factors, for yeah, instance. What they, I call jerks. Right, jerks, Redeemable yes. jerks. Redeemable. And, and, <laughs> and you know, I, I, I do believe that that has to now happen because— Because it's not right for, you know, somebody to be able to raise their hand yes. and end a person's career with no right. due process. So actually, in this book, I discuss the Al Franken case in some detail because I, I think it is, uh, you know, I feel sad about it. Where we should not be going. Uh, there needs to be a road uh, for redemption for for someone who, um, you know, in all kinds of ways, is a fantastic family man and has done a lot for women, right? Um, uh, but to move away from that for a second, just to remind everyone that it is not just the Ashley Judds of this world, right, mm-hmm. who are the victims. Um, 13% of all men in white-collar jobs have also suffered sexual harassment, mm-hmm. and 60% of those are harassed by a more senior woman, which is an astounding wow. figure. And the reason we don't hear about this, uh, it's so profoundly humiliating that only 3% of men ever report. Their motivation for silence is even greater than women. Yes, because, uh, I mean, in interview after interview, men who had gone through this said that they felt that they'd become the office joke. Uh, mm. uh, if a you know, glamorous 45-year-old comes after you, uh, I mean, this is kind of the stuff of wet dreams, right? You know, why the heck don't you like this? <laughs> Uh, and they feel that in a lot of macho cultures, they'll just become um, a joke. Mm. They're terrified of that, but they're also terrified of um, not being taken seriously by HR. And what it or like, would... why didn't you say no? Right, exactly. And that is particularly uh, real for black men because fi- black men are 50% more likely to get harassed than white men. Mm-hmm. And their reporting rate is almost zero. Yeah. And, you know, when Terry Crews uh, came out last year uh, with his um, accusation uh, against his agent that he had been harassed uh, at a, actually at an agency party by his uh, agent, uh, a white guy, um, it was very searing. Uh, he also got demolished by other black leaders, particularly in the entertainment world, who couldn't understand why this, you know, strong football player actor hadn't just taken care of it Mm. uh, and, you know, kind of hit the guy back or whatever, right? Uh, And it was an amazing case of this man uh, with a great deal of courage coming forward with this complaint, which actually was validated uh, in an an investigation. 
uh, and being clobbered by his community. Yeah. Uh, so I think men so are... So sad. So I think we see uh, how hard it is for particularly men of color uh, to own to these experiences. But of course, it helps explain why 46% of the black men who graduated from the Harvard Business School, right? Men who were obviously the most on track, accomplished. Yeah, on track for big time corporate careers, 46% of them drop out in their 30s. Uh, because uh, it's just too hard, and I think that this story is part of it. It's not a story that's often. It's not the only contributing. No, 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 no. Factor. But it's it's a way in which um, they're shoved aside. Yeah, it's an ingredient. Yes, and I think again, you know, there are these unclear lines between bullying, yeah, uh, and sexual aggression, and indeed, you know, I have some amazing interviews in the book which show what that looks like and feels like. Um, and then the other story, which is, again, um, amazingly clear from this data, which was, you know, fielded by NORC at the University of Chicago. It's very good data. It's uh, nationally representative of this group of white-collar workers. The other dramatic uh, group is that gay women are very disproportionately targeted, uh, fully 42%. By men or women? Or both? Both. both. And again, they're disinclined to report. And, and Sylvia, one question I had that I had later on in the process, but because you bring it up, is, you know, some progress is being made. You have suggestions for um, additional things that could be done, and, and we will get to that. But I still get the feeling that um, gay men and women people of color are still being left out of even the small progress that's being made. Is that a fair statement? Uh, I think uh, it is. Uh, if you remember, it was Tarana Burke. Who started the Me yes, Too movement. Yes, right. Uh, a wonderful black civil rights uh, activist from the Bronx. Uh, she actually founded the Me Too movement in 2006. Mm. Now it was before a, there were hashtags, right? Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, because she felt that it was so rife in her community. Because you know, one of the things I learned in the book is that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 did not actually condemn sexual harassment. No, and in fact, as late as 2013. Uh, the way uh, the FBI defined uh, sexual harassment uh, was only a man against a woman. It mm. was part and parcel of violence against uh, women. It was not thought to be occurring or perhaps wasn't thought that it could occur if the perpetrator was a woman. And also, don't you refer to a Supreme Court case where the definition of sexual harassment was a pretty damn high bar. It was, yes. And again, uh, assumed uh, that the aggressor was a man. And you see, I think that chapter in the book that looks at women as power players, uh, women as predators, uh, for me was the most disturbing of all. Mm. Why, why was it more disturbing? Because, you know, as a thoroughgoing feminist... Uh, uh, How could there be bad women? Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
But, you know, people like Laura Semple, who is a feminist theorist at UCLA, uh, there is reluctantly now an acknowledgement that you can't both be a very strong feminist and not understand that uh, many women are getting some power (laughs) these Mm -hmm. days, and we want that, and some of them are going to abuse it. Yeah. And I think the case I talk about is the one of um, Abitol uh, Ronell at NYU. Yeah. A very distinguished uh, star, again, a star in the uh, world of uh, scholarship. Yes. And there was a two-year period where she very much um, hit on and then coerced a young male graduate student to have an affair with her. Lots of evidence, lots of emails, lots of investigations, and she was put on leave because of her behavior. Uh, When he turned against her, uh, she retaliated big time. And, you know, if you just change the pronouns, it's uh, (laughs) kind of a classic story. However, you know, the incidence is clearly uh, much smaller, and I do feel that inclusive cultures that have a a much better balance between men and women at the top uh, really do do much better on this front, and that's exactly where some of my solutions go. So let's talk about a couple of other things before we um, get to uh, the solution. So one is the floodgates have opened. In fact, you talk about that. Now, some of the floodgates that have opened, I find even more annoying, meaning the guy's discovered and is and the price he pays is he gets $30 million or $20 million yeah. or $45 million, and then he lands at another corporation. How much longer are we going to see that? I call Because that's really annoying. It is. I call them <laughs> the, the boomerang boys. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, people like Charlie Rose turn up in all kinds of good circumstances elsewhere. Um, Well, again, the brand new flood of uh, no tolerance for serious sexual assault policies uh, coming out of corporations are promising no golden parachutes. Uh, IPG, the huge uh, advertising conglomerate, has come out with that. Uh, You know, they run McCann and you know, lots of the other big agencies. So again, I think there is a uh, a new round of corporate policies mm-hmm. that are beginning to see that um, you've got to hold the proven predators accountable. And is part of that a total zero tolerance policy? Well, you know, what I'm encouraging, because I do talk to these corporations, uh, is a zero tolerance for serious proven offenses. And how would you define those? Well, there is this huge uh, gulf between assault and harassment. Mm-hmm. And But share with us how one distinguishes between those things, because I think people get confused, right? So right. you shouldn't be touching people, but if I touch them on the shoulder, right. if, I t- if I'm a man right. or a woman touching right. a woman on the, sh- on the shoulder, right. um, what category is that as opposed to patting somebody on their butt? Well, you know, it's a fabulous question. So <laughs> um, the General Council of International Paper, very much a, you know, center of the country kind of company. Uh, she's great. Uh, she told me that what they recommended now at her company was what she called the church hug. What's that? (laughs) It means that you use one arm, right, to, uh, you know, hug someone that 
at work that you haven't seen for a while, someone that you're fond of. You Somehow know, one, a one-arm yeah. hug is safer yes. than a two-arm hug? Well, it's hug? a kind of sideways hug. Right? I see. I it's see. nothing frontal going on. Okay. Uh, and so when You're I, not bringing them in. Yes. You're not bringing them in. <laughs> yes. You're not, you know, delivering a slobbering kiss or what, yeah. whatever. So what I have searched for is actual examples of how this distinction is exactly. being made. Because you've almost got to see it, you know, up close and personal to figure out what the new rules are because you certainly don't want workplaces where you can't show respect or affection or you can't show empathy. Uh, and the idea that you've always got to have your door open, for instance, you know, is, you know, you can't get too Mickey Mouse about this. But Sylvia, I hear even, I hear good men, men who I know are good men yeah. and don't want to do the wrong thing and totally value women feel like, you know what? I, I just can't even... I don't even know what's right and wrong anymore, yeah, right. and therefore I'm not hiring women. I'm not going out with them. Right. I'm not going to have meetings. I'm not going to have them in my right. office. How much of that backlash are you seeing? I'm seeing a lot. Yeah, uh, which is why you know I've got the figure on it: sixty percent are thinking that way. Um, so this is why I have ten action steps. Yeah, which I love. Yes, because it's very practical. I mean. You have to get to know, uh, you know, an amazing talent that you intend perhaps advocating for, sponsoring, uh, you know, taking risks around. Uh, you can't do this in groups or by email. But a great place to get together with someone is the company cafeteria. Yeah. Lunch, coffee. Not a bar. Not bars. I mean, I, I actually lay that out. It seems very simple, but it isn't. The other thing, if you're traveling with a colleague, which is, you know, predictably... Don't share a room. Start with that. <laughs> exactly. Don't meet in your hotel room, you know, as uh, uh, Marty Weinstein obviously felt he needed to... But, you know, it. Sylvia, when I look at your list, like you have individual action steps, right. and they are... Um, all right, I have them right here. Um, you know, don't touch or otherwise invade personal space. Right. Don't dress provocatively. Don't meet in bars or, or hotel rooms. Don't flirt or sleep with someone. Don't be tardy. Well, just these seem so basic. I know, but think of this. One thing that the Me Too movement hasn't taken on very directly is the toxic impact of illicit affairs. Uh, when I say illicit, what I'm it talking doesn't mean non-consensual. Exactly, illicit is. If one is much more senior than the other person and there is a chain of command, right, mm -hmm. that makes it, uh, you know, very uh, dicey in all kinds of ways. Or if one is married and the other isn't, right, again, it becomes secretive. It becomes something under the covers, you know, in all kinds yeah. of ways. What I have data on is what that does to a team. 25% mm. of the entire team get turned off. Of course. They all want to go work someplace else. And morale, productivity fall through the floor. Because you feel like the environment is no longer fair. It's not fair because who knows what's happening with pillow talk, yeah. you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And the, both uh, lose the respect of their co-workers. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, we know uh, in rather cynical ways, it's oftentimes the woman that pays the biggest price still. But I think that in Often, terms not of... not always. Right. But I think, and I go into this in some depth, and I interview some 
team member who actually just went through this. Um, and we can all relate to this. It has a huge impact mm. on the ability of that team to do well, right? Uh, and for yeah. the ability of that person to stick around, the, the, the really good people on that team who are actually playing it straight. So I try and look at the whole range of um you know, inappropriate sexual behavior that really trips people up and trips companies up. So, Sylvia, one of the things that I feel, and I don't know whether you'll agree or not agree, or even if it could be enforced, but a lot of the examples of powerful men who have gotten away with what they've gotten away with for years, if not decades— they're, they have aide-de-camps. They have colluders, right? They have yes, people right. who are protecting them for a variety of reasons, their own careers, their star power, their ability to make a lot of money. You know, are colluders getting punished? You know, or will colluders need to be as be punishable in order for there to be real change? Like, we're all in this together? I think we saw that happening uh, at 60 Minutes uh, and at CBS more generally because it was felt that the reason that those men um, got to misbehave for so many years is that their posse, right, mm-hmm. uh, were guarding them, helping them, uh, protecting them, partly because a lot of the other men were also also had skeletons in their closets. Mm. So there was kind of a... Con- they didn't want to open that Pandora's box because they could get Except, sucked in. Yes. So I think mm. it was a very deep and um, stable <laughs> uh, kind of play by those in power, which is how we get back to power, right? Because mm. they really did have an awful lot at stake in promoting each other. You know, if I can just tell my story a little bit. Sure. Uh, because I I'd do love for feel, you to do that. Because I do feel that it hits a few things. So it was Friday afternoon in late January. And I was chomping at the bit, eager to leave the office. I had turned 23 two days earlier and had a party to get to. I checked my watch for the umpteenth time. It was only 4.30, still too early to walk out the door. Reluctantly, I opened up the data file I was working on and attempted to settle down. A few minutes later, there was a tap on the frosted glass panel of my cubicle. And Sebastian Tyler's large head loomed over the edge. Come join me for a drink, he boomed, thrusting his face uncomfortably close to mine. I shrank back, trying to avoid his spittle as well as a lewd leer. Five o'clock sharp, something stiff and strong. Sebastian stared at me and wet his fleshy lips. You know where my office is. Beating back shock and surprise, I made excuses. Afraid that can't happen, I said. I need to leave a little early today. It was my birthday uh, on Wednesday, and I have plans with friends. Stopped in his tracks, Sebastian straightened up and pondered. Then, with a salacious grin and an air of triumph, he thrust his face into mine again. Tell you what, he said. I'll be very happy with that hand job, and that won't take long. Come along about 4.45, and I guarantee you'll be out of here in a jiffy. Hmm. 
Sebastian let out a snort of satisfaction, turned on his heel and left, leaving me reeling. So what then happened? <laughs> well, I was, I had three emotions. Uh, first off, I was totally gobsmacked. I'd only met this one man once before. It was at the Christmas party when he'd introduced me to his wife, right? That was the history. Secondly, I, I felt deeply ashamed. Um, I couldn't quite understand why because, you know, it wasn't some kind of siren. My um, go-to outfits uh, at work were, you know, high-necked Laura Ashley dresses, for heaven's sake. I was, you know, a very um, I, inexperienced person. Mm -hmm. I hardly knew what a hand job was. But I also was deeply scared because this guy had enormous power over me. Uh, he was um, the managing partner of the consulting firm where I had newly gotten a job. A good job. A great job. I had put my heart and soul into getting this job. I was from a blue-collar family, so going to Cambridge and finally landing this, in, you know, a, a very well-paid job in a male-dominated sector was a huge triumph for me. But I knew that he was the type. He was so uh, entitled that he would retaliate big time if I turned him down, and obviously I was planning to do that. And I... Imagine that he just put me out on my ear, you know, with no severance uh, and uh, no recommendation. In fact, he might blackball me. Mm -hmm. uh, there were very few other management consulting firms that, you know, were in this orbit, and he might really make it impossible for me. So what to do? Uh, I started off just trying to avoid him. But two we weeks later, he, um, he found me in what was called the Xeroxing room. Shut the door, turned off the light, and then just went for me. Uh, ripped off my blouse, you know, yanked my breasts out and twisted my nipples, that kind of stuff. I was, you know, I, I, I guess I did yet I let out the most amazing squeals because it was tremendously um, brutal. In fact, I, I was so loud that um, he kind of came to his senses, and uh, I managed to get out of the room. But describe what happened when you left the room. Well, here's the thing. Um, in the intervening two weeks, every time he'd seen me in the corridor, he slapped my bottom, mm -hmm. or he rubbed up against me. And my colleagues were beginning to uh, think that maybe I was having an affair with him. So when I left that Xeroxing room... Uh, clutching a blouse that had lost all its buttons, right, trying to put myself together, I encountered a whole curious crowd of co-workers. And they looked me up and down, uh, the flushed face, the uh, disheveled appearance. Uh, I fled down the back stairs and went home. <laughs> but from then on in, um, I was kind of typhoid Mary. Yeah. Uh, I was uh, the only one of two women uh, in that cohort. They were convinced I was sleeping with the big boss. And so I was, you know, sent to outer Siberia. No one would um, go out with, to coffee with me. You know, no one would read my draft reports. Uh, and I was, I knew it was over. I did seek advice uh, from, not from HR. HR was seen as being in the pocket of senior management. Yeah, which was typical in those days. Absolutely. And it was also thought to be feeble. That was the word that was used. 
So I went back to a very distinguished professor who recommended me for this job. Uh, we had tea. <laughs> professor Ko, um, you know, listened to my distressing story. Um, he pushed his tea cup aside and then said, you know, with a sigh and clearly with a heavy heart, uh, he said, well, I've got some bad news. You best get out of there. Mm. Uh, Sebastian's a prick. You know, I've known him for 20 years. He's always been a prick. Uh, but he's their biggest producer. Mm. The highly valued. Yes, and he's untouchable. Mm. Uh, and the next week I handed him my notice and I left. Yeah. So, Sylvia, listening to this story and having read it, I'm struck by uh, two things that prompt two questions. One is that as you've told this story, mm-hmm. and we're sitting in a studio here in New York, this is 50 years ago. It is 50 years and ago. And you visibly changed your demeanor and hand movements in telling that story, which is a reminder that when people say, oh, my God, for God's sakes, that was 40 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, describe how that event still sits with you today. Here you are, an enormously accomplished, renowned person. How does that event of 50 years ago still sit with you? For starters, I didn't tell anyone. Mm. For how long? 50 years. Well, 48. 49, 48. (laughs) Yes. A long Um, time. Yes, I didn't tell my husband. Uh, I mean, I wasn't married at the time. I didn't tell the sister I was living with. Mm. Uh, But in October 2017, I was running a big conference uh, in New York, and uh, Ariana Huffington uh, she and I were in conversation at one of the keynote events, and uh, she started talking about the brilliant jerks in Silicon Valley. I remember at that time, she was busy, uh, she was on the Uber board. Right. And involved in trying to... And took uh, a very senior role during the The ouster up. of uh, Travis... Travis. Uh, remember, remember yeah. all of that. Yes. So that was going on. Uh, the Untouchables, uh, and I just had this overwhelming sense uh, that I wanted to tell my story about my brilliant jerk, um, and I did. And I got teary, which was amazing because, as you said, it was yeah. so deep in my past. But the the humiliation and the um, physical kind of degradation that goes into uh, that, yeah, it was extraordinary. And you know, I don't even. I, I, it would be unfair for me to see myself as some time, kind of big victim. I'm not, right? Well, that was my second yes, question. Yes, yes. I, I don't feel that because I mean, it did destroy a career. What I did after I left the Economist Intelligence Unit was that I, I went back to grad school. Uh, I felt very um, 
I felt I'd lost a lot of my confidence. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to be in a safer world. Um, yeah. So I became a, a college teacher. Uh, and the thing that I was aware of at the time uh, is what I had lost because I loved uh, the kind of global consult consulting I was doing. Yeah. Being so practically effective in countries that I had lived in because I'd already spent time in Africa and Latin America. I was very in the kind mm -hmm. of global world. Uh, and then I had to retreat to academia and do a much quieter... And it felt smaller. Well, yes. I mean, I, I think... Less I, impactful. Uh, yes, exactly. But I also knew that the field had lost me mm. because I was all set to be super successful in that world. Yeah, but Sylvia, the, the question that I think comes to my mind, right? We're, we're two women um, in our 70s right. at, with, a, with a certain uh, level of accomplishment. So what were the factors that allowed you mm -hmm. to nonetheless emerge strong and confident and highly successful? Because you know, when we talk about the indirect costs, the indirect mm -hmm. costs are the women who yes. quit the game. Right. Not quit the game because they want to quit the game, which is fine, but quit the game because they feel humiliated, shamed, right. and a loss of confidence. So what do you think were the factors that contributed to your being able to sort of like pick yourself back up and go out there? Right. One thing you're right about is that in the wake of those kinds of Break points, right? A lot of women do languish or leave. Uh, I, or quit. I, yeah, yeah, Not leave, just quit their job. Right, no, quit, quit, quit. Uh, and I have, again, data on that. Uh, and it's tremendous. It's a tremendous loss uh, for the individuals, uh, but also, you know, obviously for the economy. Um, I think what allowed me to reemerge after licking my wounds, I think, for several years as mm -hmm. I reestablished myself in a... In and a, got a PhD. You know, right, and stuff like that, yes. <laughs> a little thing. I have five sisters. Mm. I grew up uh, in a family of six girls, no brothers, mm -hmm. in a coal mining village. In England. In Wales. In Wales. Very much not England. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> Wales was always thought of as a kind of lower class, you know, offshoot uh, with no stature in the world. Um, and I think that my sisterhood of mm -hmm. upwardly mobile, uh, you know, close-in siblings were profoundly important mm -hmm. in allowing me to uh, grasp hold of ambition again. Mm-hmm. So people can create sisterhoods. Yes, yes. Right? Uh, it, the, that I have always, I, I think that's interesting because I have always felt that women, the way in which women support other women is mm -hmm. one of the most profoundly powerful right. sort of tools yes. that we have as women. And I think that that is why I found this small ticking up of the <clears throat> incidence of female uh, predators, right, uh, in the workplace 
so sad. Um, yeah, so sad. Dispiriting. Very dispiriting. And which caused me, you know, in that last part of the book, to really explore the correlations. In other words, if you do have mm-hmm. just a much more balanced, much more diverse leadership group, uh, voices around the table that are not homogeneous, uh, does this kind of bullying and power play, you know, uh, get much less? And there is quite a lot, a lot of evidence that it does. It does. Yes. However, we certainly have many fields, you know, which uh, is still um, old school in terms of the uh, rigidity of mm-hmm. the hierarchical, you know, dog eats dog kind of culture. And unconscious, almost unconscious. Yes, yes. Um, but but that was, you know, deeply distressing. And I went looking for a lot of other evidence. And it, it is true that the EEOC, for instance, finds that the um, complaints against women in power are ticking up. Mm. So it's not just my data. You know, I, I, usually, yeah. I, I don't really like using uh, even very good data unless it's somehow corroborated. Yes, yeah. right. Uh, so it is a phenomenon out there. Mm. Uh, and I, I do feel that <clears throat> we need to see these things clearly. And I, I do feel very strongly that right now, at the heart of the Me Too story is the older senior white guy, right? And the more junior, uh, high-performing uh, white woman. We have not as yet, despite mm. the huge gains of the movement, and I'm you know, a big beneficiary myself. Yeah. Um, we have not yet widened the tent enough. Yeah, it was one of the one of the questions yes. I had. Yes, uh, and uh, to understand that it's an, anyone who is the other. Yeah, and you know, because so, this is about power. Yes, and because that other groups, outside groups, are perceived as threatening, less powerful. Yes, but they're also threatening you because. Uh, it is one of the unintended consequences of our new um, focus on diversity, right? And very much wanting uh, to have many voices in the mix of whether it's innovation, right, or, yeah. uh, you know, leadership. Uh, the backlash is, you know, very real. And uh, figuring out how to put these new pe- people in their place <laughs> Yeah, uh, is something that is behind, you know, some of this sexual aggression. So, Sylvia, you know, I'm my oh, good. We have um, a little bit more time. You know, I do. I'll say this at the end also, but you have so much in this book that um, I think is worthy of not only being read once but twice or three times because. These are complicated subjects, right? They're not very. We don't have simple black and white answers. So before we run out of time, there's a couple of things that you bring up that I want to make sure um, we we cover. Um, one is, I did one. I'm glad you brought up that the movement is not yet embracing all groups in right. the way uh, that it needs to, and. But you have in the remedies, so you have three sets of action steps in the book. One are legal remedies, one are individual action steps, and the others um, 
uh, the other is corporate changes. Yes. So a couple that I we mentioned a couple of the individual um, action steps. You have one that I think feels controversial, and I want I, I would like to hear further thoughts on it. One is for women to not dress provocatively or in a flirty way. So I bring this up because a lot of times when there's been serious sexual aggression, Mm -hmm. like rape, the courts have wanted to say, well, why'd you dress that? You know, why'd you have that cleavage? Um, As if that entitled her to be raped, right? So we've heard about these egregious examples. Yet you bring up the point, I think, in a constructive way, but talk about it a little bit more about what women also need to do. It's a very central question. Uh, The last thing I want to do is blame the victim. Exactly. Right. Uh, But uh, without it being a gendered thing, uh, because I don't feel that men should go around with super tight pants or, you mm-hmm. know, uh, exposed, Shirts, bu- buttoned down. hairy, you know, or chest showing. Yeah. Um, it makes sense that you make some accommodations uh, to a working environment mm-hmm. uh, because you are there to do a job. And I think stuff that distracts... Uh, is- Which is a good umbrella. Yes. Things that distract. Yes. You know, it is a good way to go. Uh, obviously, it depends on the culture. Uh, in Silicon Valley, you know, it's a very casual culture. I'm not sure that, um, you know, uh, again, hairy chests or <laughs> a plunging uh, necklines make much sense there either. But I'd like to see it as you know, neutral in terms mm. of gender because right. um, my son is gay. He is in the dance community. And even in our um, artistic world like that, you know, he definitely um, has enough sense to read his audience and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, turn up in ways that um, don't distract because he mostly wants to be seen as, a, you know, an amazing performer. Right. Uh, so I, I think if we take it away from it just being something on the backs of women, uh, it helps. The other thing that I will say is that if you are climbing any ladder, uh, I did a whole book on executive presence. A great book, uh, by the way. Well, thank you. Um, you need to be dressing for your next job, mm. which means projecting gravitas, right? In general. In general. Uh, and given the way the world is, uh, and not some utopia, uh, yeah. that means that there's a bunch of um, guardrails, right, for all um, cohorts. I mean, you, you can't look as though you grew up in Peoria these days either if you're a white guy. You know, you've got to produce a little more style in many mm-hmm. environments. Uh, sometimes you have to be uh, versatile. And if the client you're going to go see is, um, you know, in retail or uh, (laughs) uh, running a central bank uh, as a management consultant. You respond to that. You respond to that. So it's really kind of common sense. And it's also about how do you uh, project um, your great ability Mm. and your gravitas. And I think... uh, 
all people. And I think your term about what's distracting from that, yes. you know, if you think about, you know, when I think about women coming up in my time in finance in New York, you know, we had to outwork people. We had to stay very aware. I'm not saying that was the right thing. I remember a young woman saying to me, you know, Roxanne, the problem is your generation thinks if you do more and get the same as a man, that's a quality. My generation feels like we don't have to do more. But nonetheless, we knew then that you had to you had to show that you were serious and accomplished. So I like the way you're right. characterizing it is about being distracting. One of the other questions I want to bring up, and this is a little bit on another, um, you know, there are a lot of diversity and inclusion leadership, committees, titles, all of that. A lot of times when you hear that language, a lot of people are rolling their eyes. Like this is a corporation just trying to cover its ass, right? You got to have a diversity this, you got to do that. What is it that makes these leadership positions or councils really work? What makes them authentic instead of inauthentic that's making people just roll their eyes and say, whatever, go do what you want to do? It's when they are about value. Mm. Some of my most important work uh, is how the different experiences, right, um, different identities contribute to innovation. And I, I've quantified this. You know, it's not just the idea, right? Yes. And it turns out that if you have at least three forms of diversity at a leadership table, uh, you are much more likely to capture out-of-the-box ideas and fund them. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and as someone said, you know, not all ideas are good ones. Talk to venture capitalists. Only 15% of ideas ever get anywhere. <laughs> right. Because they're just not very good. Exactly. Uh, the problem is you need a, a kind of level playing field of ideas. And right now, an idea put on the table by a brilliant white guy has a 62% chance of getting funded. Right. Uh, A brilliant idea put on the table by a lowly African-American employee has a 2% chance. 2%. Yes. So what I'm saying is, hey, guys, you know, just get with the program here. You need to tap into diverse marketplaces. You need to viscerally understand uh, how to reach uh, people who do not look like you. You know, the biggest... um, emerging market in the world is not China. It's women. (laughs) These days, we control 63% of the wealth of the world. All right. And it's not just the widows and the, you know, uh, because we know we live longer. The inheritees. Uh, Right. But it's a whole group of women entrepreneurs. Yeah. Particularly in countries like China, where they're doing fantastically. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, hey, pin it on value. So so what I'm hearing, and I just want to make sure that we articulate this, is if you have the committee over here and then the leadership room is the same old white guys, right. 
that people are going to roll their eyes. Yes. But if it's integrated in as the part business strategy, how the company yes. operates and makes and money. And how it's going to grow. Yeah. <laughs> how it's actually going to make more revenue in new marketplaces. Um, and then the second to the last question I'd like to ask you is one of your um, wish lists on the legal side is that women do not agree to arbitration or mediation right. and pursue a legal path to restitution. So talk to us what that looks like. And I always think of that as a high-risk move. And you even bring up an example in the book where you say, you, you know, the woman was invited to a um, a drink in a room. She turned him down. She lost a plum assignment. And she might think, oh, well, she's got this locked up. She easily can sue for restitution. And you suggest she might not. So why do you recommend the legal route? And what needs to happen for that to work? I think most legal routes um, are very difficult. And I believe in the individual and organizational action steps more thoroughly than I do the legal remedies. Uh, the reason I say that, look at, you know, uh, Harvey Weinstein, right, this second. You know, it's only two cases that are in the end being tried. Uh, and I think they're going to get chewed up. Um, there I'm is so many. About yeah, that. Yes, exactly. Uh, forced arbitration is the worst of the worst because uh, it's all in the hands of the company and the power is right and you come tilted. away with very little uh, and one of the price you pay one of the prices you pay is obviously confidentiality uh, and the fact that Google has abandoned this as part of their employee contracts now is, is a big step in the right direction. Right. So it's not that I feel that the litigation route is so great, but it's uh, in some cases better than having it all behind closed doors with all the power in the pocket of the company. One thing that I think is happening on the legal front, which is kind of fabulous, um, is the way in which the... Um, statutory um, uh, time limits. Have been expanded. Yes. Uh, and I have a little piece at the end of the book because when Cuomo in New York State um, uh, extended by 50 years, you know, the time limits on when you could accuse a, um, a predator of having, you know, uh, abused you when you were a child, right? It's made a huge difference mm -hmm. uh, to the ability of, uh, in, in that sector. And I thought that most of the folks coming out of the woodwork the day after that, you know, happened would be the Catholic Church's victims. But if you look at the list, it's amazing. It's the Boy Scouts. It's, you know, Rockefeller University. It's uh, all kinds of august organizations. Crazy. <clears throat> and that's kind of beautiful because... Uh, that's not going to go away. Yeah, uh, It's holding feet to the fire in real ways because, hey, uh, something done in the past can now be prosecuted. And, and do you – are you optimistic that we are at a pivot point? I mean, you and I have watched over 50 years a gazillion, bedillion conversations that this was going to be – 
the change, that this was going to happen, that, you know, that after Anita Hill, after this, after that, things would be better. Do you feel that we are at a fundamentally different pivot point, and are you optimistic that we'll see real change? I am. To quote the chief risk officer of Citi, sexual misconduct is now a strategic risk. Mm. Sitting in his portfolio, not off in DNI, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because the cost that I, you know, we talked about right at the beginning, whether it's hits to the brand, which can shave enormous value off a company. Or just real dollars. Yes, yes. Or, or the constant litigation. Uh, or the emptying out of talent. And and cities made a huge commitment to women. The last thing they wanted to do is, you know, reverse that right this second. Um, so I, I think there's enough um, in the way of financial incentives to force at least some incremental change. Because now you don't have to be a good guy to fix it. No. You have to be a good business person. Or you have to be a chief risk officer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sylvia, um, uh, I am really delighted that you took the time uh, to talk with us today. We've been talking with Sylvia Ann Hewlett. Uh, She's written a book uh, titled Hashtag Me Too in the Corporate World. And I think what you've done, which I've not seen done before, is you are very pragmatic. This This is not an emotional book. This is about data this is about stories, and you have real-world remedies. So I want to encourage um, people to read this because, you know, I've get, I've read a lot about this. I think about this a lot, and I just learned so much going through this book. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for your work, and thank you for writing this book. Well, I'm humbled by those words coming from you, Roxanne, so thank you. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening. 